All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in 1 Kings 7 and 8. We'll do our best anyway. 8 is very long. Um, but we're going to do just an overview of 7 because it is, uh, it is a lot of detail, and I really even, to find spiritual application in a lot of this stuff is a little difficult. Um, so instead of listening to me just read the facts and the sizes and the specs of different parts of the temple, I think I'll uh, sum up. How's that? Today after second service, we'll be having a potluck. If you want to come back and join us for that? We're doing chicken strips, chicken strips from Hy-Vee and, and bring whatever else you want to do. I don't even know what time the game starts today. 5.30. So you got plenty of time to eat here and, and get back for your game. That's some game. I think the Suns, the Phoenix Suns are playing. It should be a really good basketball game. Really good. Um, prayer tonight at 7 o'clock. Um, and, and then uh, worship night, February 16th at 6 p.m. at the bridge. We're doing a corporate worship time with us and, and their church coming together. It'll be fun um, and great. Just a good worship time with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then, the, of course, the conference is coming up September 18th to the 19th with Ken Ham. I just keep mentioning that. I probably will stop mentioning that for a while. We're going to do it, you know, uh, we'll talk about it more later on uh, as it gets closer. So that's the Calvary Chapel Association uh, leadership conference um, with him. So, all right. First Kings chapter seven. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and a window was opposite uh, the and window was opposite window in three tiers, and so on. He begins to describe this house that he built, um, and that's you know, uh, verse eight. The house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as a wife, and so on. And so he built all the things he wanted to build. And the Bible's describing all these homes. It took him thirteen years to do some of these things. And, uh, of course, that's twice as long as he spent on the temple. And, of course, we, we hit on that a little bit last week and how um, it's exciting to do things for the Lord. And, and, uh, and the whole point of doing that for the Lord, to build the temple of the Lord, was because of the feeling of being in such a nice place, a nice palace, David thought, and God having such a small tent out there. Certainly, it made him feel uncomfortable living in a nicer place. Uh, than God, and uh, wanted to do something about that. And Lord, God is not concerned with where we worship Him as as, as as much as He is our hearts on the matter. And he tried to explain that to David, and yet, go ahead, David, build me this house. I mean, you can't, but your son can. And so Solomon does it, and he gets done building this magnificent palace. It's nicer, you know, for the Lord, nicer than any other uh, uh, temple around. And and uh, then he went to build his own house, which is even a step up from the temple in, in many ways, not necessarily in gold, but in size and in length of time to build. So um, somehow or another, this seems to be a, a tipping point for Solomon. He has some good things to say today in chapter 8, um, but he lost sight of the fact that it, he wasn't supposed to upgrade necessarily. You know, uh, It was supposed to just be letting God be God and uh, remembering who you are as a servant of the Most High God. And things had changed a little bit. Now, 
Verse 13. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he's going to describe all the bronze that he did. So, so far we've had the temple made of stone, all quarried off site, brought, put together, overlaid with gold. And artisans came in and did their work and so on. But now we're going to add bronze. And symbolically speaking, throughout Scripture, gold represents heaven or deity. Uh, Silver represents redemption. And then, of course, bronze uh, represents sin. And so this is going to be outside of the temple. The people would go buy these things on their way in. One of the things that's going to be described here is a 35-foot, two of them, 35-foot tall bronze pillars. Um, that the, actually 20, it's 27 feet, just the pillar itself. And then they put a cap on it. That's about seven and a half feet for giving it about a 35 foot height. And they're standalone units. They're just outside the temple. The temple's built. It's all by itself. And the bronze seems to be just sitting there, not supporting anything. They're just out there. Um, and these were made and they're about six and a half feet to seven feet across. Um, the diameter or the, the circumference is, it's much larger. It's 18, I think. Um, cubits. And somebody mentioned last week, what's a cubit? Well, a cubit is 18 inches about. It depended on the king. They would measure from the tip of the finger to the elbow, and that's a cubit. So if you got a big guy like Wilt Chamberlain, you'd have a big cubit that year. And if you had a, a smaller guy, you'd have a shorter cubit. So not a very good way to measure, but that's what they did. So that's a cubit. So you got to do it's about a foot and a half. So you just add a third uh, or, you know, 50, 50% to it, and uh, you got your, you've got your empirical system. Um, so we didn't, I didn't do metric to do that on your own. Uh, <laughs> so he describes these two pillars and he names these two pillars. One means he shall be established and the other is in his, or it, it, in it is strength. These are the names of the two pillars. They named these pillars. Um, and so they would stand in uh, testimony. They would stand in honor of the Lord um, and the nation of Israel. And that's what those are for. The next section of Scripture, chapter, verses 23 through 26, um, describes this brass labor. It's called the sea. Um, remember, uh, the, the temple had something like this. It had a big brass bowl outside where the priests would take and do their uh, ritual washing there and wash themselves before they put on their clothes to do service for God. Well, this is the bigger version of that. It would describe it, and it's pretty big. It it, uh, two different locations describe it two different ways. Second Chronicles four through or four, chapter four verse five says it holds about three thousand uh, gallons uh, or three thousand baths, and then uh, and then this one says it holds about twelve thousand gallons or whatever it was. I, I, I didn't circle it. Twelve oxen and let's see, it's at the end here. 2,000 baths. So you can do the ratio on that. It really doesn't matter. The point is it's a big bronze bowl, about, oh, six foot across or so, maybe bigger, um, sitting on top of 12 oxen that are facing, uh, they're facing out. So three facing north, south, east, and west, and they're sitting there. So it's this big brass, and they would get into that, and that's the clean. And this, of course, symbolizes what we read in Revelation when it describes heaven. You've got the sea before the throne and so on. And so they've got these pictures here on earth, a model of heaven on earth. And so that's described there. Verses 27 uh, through 39 are all the carts and the lavers. And these are used as uh, utensils and, and, and things around the outside. They built 10 carts. They were about six by six. Uh, and then they had 10 lavers, uh, which 
contained each 40 baths. So a little small thing. Um, and they would hold these labors in these things, these little bowls inside of these carts. And they put three on, or five on the uh, left side and five on the right side, basically. And uh, they would use those for moving stuff around. Um, verse 40. Um, describes Hiram made the labors and the shovels and the bowls and all the other things he, he built um, and describes in detail. Verse, uh, let's go down to 45 and a half. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. Of course, that represents sin. In the plain of Jordan, uh, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zeratan. Uh, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. Uh, the weight of bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord. Altar of gold, the table of gold, and the showbread. He describes all those things, the trimmers, the lamps, everything inside was going to be made of gold, um, and the doorposts and so on. And then everything outside was made of bronze. Okay, so there, I, that's my sum up. You can read it in detail if you want to. Um, and go through all those things. Now, chapter 8. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel. So the thing's built, it's all ready. And all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of uh, uh, Ethanim, uh, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him, uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. So a big deal. They make a big deal out of this. It's a dedication to the Lord here, a dedication to the temple uh, what they've done. Um, we're supposed to have a personal relationship with God, very personal. Um, and that's very good. And it, and it should be very um, familiar in the sense that uh, it should, we should be comfortable praying at any time, talking to the Lord at any time. With that being said, though, it's nice to read this to remind myself of who we're praying to. Um, back before, and this is before Jesus Christ had made a way for them to come, this was the way for them to come to God. The only way for them to come to God was through these sacrifices that God had laid out for them to do. If you want to approach me, these are the things you have to go through because of who I am. And part of the process and the difficulty was to show them how big God was, how magnificent he was, how royal he was, how pure he was, how holy he was. It was meant to take them, this is, I'm very, very, very far away from you, was the idea. And it takes very, a lot of steps for me to get closer to you, to do these things, to become into a place where I can approach you. There's many, many things. And there was a, there was a respect, a reverence for the Lord. Now that we have Jesus Christ as our way of salvation, he is the one sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And we know that and we understand that we should still have that same awe, reverence, and respect towards Jesus Christ in the sense that he is the way that I come to God. And to look at the cross and to look at the resurrection of the Lord and to look at all that he went through for us, we should have this same feeling in our hearts 
the same understanding in our minds even of, I can't believe all that it took. Jesus couldn't have avoided any of the things he went through or else we wouldn't be able to approach God. He had to go through all of these things for us to be able to approach God and it pleased him. He was looking forward to it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He endured that shame. And so for me to understand that about him, that it's a big deal. I, I, we, we've got to maybe get back a little bit to this and to read these things to understand. I'm so thankful that we don't have all this anymore that we're reading today. All the animal sacrifices, all the ritual, all the formality of it. And yet when I come to prayer, when I come to speak with Jesus, when I come to open his word, when I come to hear what he has to say, I don't want to come to him as a buddy of mine at the local diner who's sitting across the table giving me some pretty good advice in my life. It's a different deal. I don't know if I should come to my knees, carefully lay the scriptures before me, lay it out and open it up. These are things that cross my mind. It's like, you know what, maybe I need to pause a little bit longer before I just flip open my Bible. And I'm not trying to make it more formal. God forbid that I should try to do and put in the way something that God's forever trying to take away from us. Please don't feel hindered coming to me. I want you to enter in, to boldly come to the throne. But I want to boldly walk in knowing full well that it's absolutely Jesus that's allowed me to come through that curtain. You know, there's something about reading this. All of the elders show up. We're going to bring in the ark. They're actually doing it right. They've got the priests carrying the ark on their shoulders as they should. No easy way, no cart, no, no shortcuts. And they get ready to make up on that. And they're coming to the temple and the whole place is just, here we go. There's, there's an expectation there, you know. It's different. I had an interesting moment. We had a very interesting week for the Dirks household. Um, very busy. Um, in a good way, though. We did a lot of different things. But we were coming home from our swim meet last night. I don't know what time we got home last night from Des Moines. We had a swim meet up there. and uh, It was an all-day deal, kind of. And uh, um, the kids are listening to a movie and um, watching a movie. The Annie, the new Annie with, uh, with the little girl is amazing. And uh, they're singing one of these songs, and it, it, was, it was very heartfelt. I'm not saying Annie is a picture of Christ. I'm not saying that at all. Um, what I'm saying was I'm listening to this, and I'm feeling overwhelmed by certain things about God's character, I guess. I'm hearing it being sung person to person back here, but I'm also then thinking about today, thinking about the service, thinking about the teaching, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm starting to feel this. I'm getting overwhelmed by the Lord at that point. Not the, not the song or anything, but it did spark something. I'm just feeling, wow, you know, there was this awe. There was this moment. Um, and I loved it. And I, and I have them frequently. I have those moments frequently where you feel overwhelmed by God and how good he is and how gracious he is and how you just kind of pause and you feel like you're just quiet before the Lord, literally. Not like, not like we pause for a moment of silence at, at some, you know, thing or whatever. Um, but I don't know how to describe it. If you know, if you know, you know. Um, but just overwhelmed, and it's just like you don't even want to breathe. You know, you're just holding your breath for this moment, kind of thing. Um, need more of those, you know. And it takes being sometimes tired, 
you know, physically broken to get to that place where you're spiritually more aware. Um, it, it takes my flesh being weakened for me to get to that place where I'm actually paying attention to the Lord. And it's at those times. And, and some of us would say, well, I just need a good night's rest. I need to, no, actually I'm going to stay fatigued right now because I'm really enjoying where I'm at with the Lord right now. This is okay. I prefer it. In fact, I don't want to leave this place. It got to that place where it's like, you know, I could just, we could just drive around the block a little longer and I don't want to pull in. I don't want it to end. These guys are having that moment right now. I guess that's the best way to describe it. The whole nation is watching all the elders in full reverence and respect dedicate this place to God. And Solomon's going to have some great words here. He's going to describe it. They're not, they're not, they're not proud of this place yet. You understand what I'm saying? They're, they're not to that place where look at what we've made. They're not there. Um, they're in a good place. Verse 6, And the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most high, or the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. We remember the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in the front of the inner sanctuary, uh, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the dark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses had put there in Horab. So that's the Ten Commandments that he had to remake. Those were there. When the Lord had made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt, so those are inside this ark. And, and it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that uh, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I, I don't know. That's amazing. It isn't what I thought. It isn't like I picture it sometimes. You know, I picture him putting the furniture in here a little to the left, you know. He comes in, they, they set everything up, they put his... They put his royal throne there. The mercy seat is on top of this ark. You understand that? Everything's set. These guys back out of this place, and they kind of stand there. God literally shows up and fills the place so much so that they couldn't continue to minister. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit is all about. You start off with your prayers. You start off with Scripture. You start off with waiting on the Lord and talking to Him about how great he is, maybe some of your problems, things like that. And the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fills you to where you cannot continue. You can't continue. It's overwhelming. It's a great place to be. It's where you're perfectly understood. Everything in your heart is perfectly understood. There's no more words I have to say. There's no more understanding. There's no more explaining. There's no more me trying to get my heart out there for him to get it. You come into the presence of God and all of a sudden you realize he completely understands me. Nobody understands me like this. Only God understands me. And that being filled with the Spirit is such an amazing moment. And they're having it. Sort of, you know to step back from that holy, reverent moment and have him say, I mean, it's almost like, he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he showed up and he sat down. Thank you, you know. 
That's God's way of saying thank you. Absolutely. This is a great chair. This is a great chair, you guys. Remember we talked about that last week? Good job, buddy. Good job. And all the kids are like, you know, this is great. He's here, you know. What a beautiful moment. Beautiful. And so Solomon spoke. Can you imagine trying to get your mouth to work? Uh, He did. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. What do you say? We built you this great house, God. Glad you like it. I'm just overwhelmed this morning. I'm a little tired. (laughs) Um, But that is how he sees you. That is how he sees me. He comes when he comes and dwells in your heart. Thank you. I'm just glad you showed up. I'm pretty sure the chair's not right. I'm pretty sure I didn't do it right. I wasn't sure if you'd come. I wasn't sure if I was in the right place or not. And he just dwells in your heart. Good job, buddy. You know? And so Solomon says whatever he could say, you know? Gosh, I appreciate him. I really do. What a tough place to be. Beautiful place to be, but you're the king. What do you, I guess it's up to me to say something, you know? Then the king turned around, you know, looks at all the people, blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hands or with his hand, he fulfilled it saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father, David, to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, whereas it was in your father, it was in your heart to build the temple for my name. You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. What a respectful way for Solomon to bring that out. You know, it was in my dad's heart to do it. And God said, I'm glad that's in your heart. You can't build it, but I'm glad that's in your heart. There's a lot of things that we get ideas about, things we want to do, things that we're maybe, I think I'm going to go do this for God. This is going to be great. We're going to do this. And then it doesn't happen. You know, you're like, oh, well, maybe I didn't hear from the Lord or maybe I didn't do this or maybe I'm whatever. And then you go through all those mental, spiritual gymnastics maybe in your, in your head. Take this to heart. No, you didn't get to do it, but I'm glad it was in your heart. The very fact that you wanted to do it. Good job, buddy. You know? And so Solomon relates that. My dad wanted to, but he he couldn't. But here it is. And says, and there I have made a place for the ark. Um, No, wait, let's verse 20. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father, David. What a great, respectful son. I've fulfilled my position in my father, David, and sat on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he has made uh, with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. That's why we raise our hands to God and worship. You know, if you ever feel that need in here, I just want to raise my hands to God, you know, it's okay. You know, it took me a long time to do that. When I first got saved, you know, I wanted to, you could feel it. And all the guys around me were a little more Pentecostal than I was. And I was like, and I, I probably told this story before, but I took my buddy who led me to the Lord and I grabbed his hand and I put it up with mine because I wasn't going to do it alone. And he was just as, you know, stoic as I was, you know, and we did it. And from then on, we raised our hands during worship. It's okay. I mean, you don't want to just, like if someone's trying to see the words and you're doing this, it's kind of hard. So maybe, you know, maybe do the, do the loaf of bread thing or whatever, you know, the different things you can do, but don't be a distraction, but it's okay to praise the Lord and lift up your hands to God if you feel so led. But God is looking at the position of your heart, not the position of your hands. Okay. But we see these guys here. When they're moved, when they're excited, Solomon turns around. He's like, you know, Abba, Father. You know, he stood there and he raised his hands toward heaven. And he said, the Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant, David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way and they walk before me as you walk before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David, uh, my father, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? This is where he gets it right. Because I know, I know. Behold, heaven and the earth of heaven. Of, of the, I'm sorry. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? He's just overwhelmed. You're so big, you know. I know this is too small. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry. And the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. And your eyes, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant make towards this place. I know it's too small, but would you at least keep your eye on it, keep your ear on it, listen to us here. This is where we're coming to talk to you. Would you, you know, would you pay attention to when we pray? And may, your, may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive, forgive. Everybody knows this is the place of mercy. This is the place of grace, that he is the God of grace, God of mercy. This is Old Testament God. He's the same God. When we come and confess our sins to you, when we come and do the things required by the law to uh, take away our sin or to at least cover them up, would you forgive? When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. That's an act of worship. I don't know how many people are asking God to, to not do what they think he's going to do. But this guy's going ahead and saying, would you go ahead and do what's right? Would you be holy and just and do what makes you great? Because you're perfect in righteousness. You're perfect in judgment. Would you go ahead and judge us rightly? 
Not many people pray that way. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When we blow it, not, not if, but when. When we get defeated by our enemies, would you forgive us for our sins against you? When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. When they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive, us this, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Not if, but when you take away the rain. When there's a famine in the land, pestilence or bright blight or mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of the cities, of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act. And give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the heart of all the sons of men, that they may fear you in all the days that they live in the land which you give to our fathers. Moreover, concerning the foreigner, that's us, that's where we are, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. I wonder if that was controversial back then to say something like that. Foreigners. I mean, they'd just gone through wiping out all the people, the land of Canaan, moving them out of here. And he said, I thought we were done with foreigners. And you kind of get the idea that maybe you're the only ones. It's like, no, no, no. He's just showing his strong arm. They're getting punished because they weren't following him, you know. But the doors are still open to them to come and know the true and living God. That's God's heart. I've chosen the people to take their place that if they obey me are going to be a great example of what it looks like for people to come. The doors are still open. This is a warning for all of us as Christians. Yeah, there's a lot of wickedness out there. Ran into some wickedness at a store on the way back from Des Moines and began to think about what I could do about it. And then I began to think about how that's multiplied. I just saw one aspect of it and that's multiplied throughout the region. And you begin to get overwhelmed. And I begin to think, well, I could give him money or I could maybe rebuke him about how he's treating his kids or maybe I could tell him to get off meth or maybe I could do this. I begin to think of all these things that you could do and I realize it's bigger than that. And that's only one person and that's only one thing and you could give him something today, but would it work tomorrow? What can I do? Oh, I'm doing it. I'm teaching the Bible. I'm telling people about Jesus. We're changing introducing people to Christ. And when they come to know Christ, their heart gets changed and it takes care of all these symptomatic issues, all the sin. I say that because the world may be wicked, but I'm, I'm not to be done with them. We're supposed to be in it, not of it, but in it. And I mean, 
forehead deep in it to get in there and to be like Christ to those people. And so is Israel. And he's proclaiming that in front of everybody. We need to be a light. These doors are open for everybody to repent and to worship the true and living God. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city, which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. That's, I mean, it's Romans in the Old Testament here. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy for far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are, or where they were carried captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and, uh, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which, you have, which I have built in your, for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron, out of the iron furnace. And your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. All right, we're, I think we'll make it here. I know it's a lot of reading, but this is his speech, and I, I don't want to interrupt him here. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. See his position there? I know it doesn't matter, but for a king to do that in front of everybody, he's really setting himself up. I mean, that's exactly where he needs to be. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of, of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not, uh, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord God, that there is, I'm sorry, that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is this day. So he's letting them know it's, there's two parts to this. We just ask him to hear our prayer. Now let's, let's, let's be there, you know, let's do it. 
Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, the fat of uh, the peace offering. Because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering, offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. That's, that's great. Overwhelmed it, you know. And that time, at that time, Solomon held a feast. And it is a celebration. It is, it's a good time to feast together, you know. Um, and all Israel with him. A great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, uh, before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days. So 14 days they feasted. Have you ever had a feast that long? And I'm not saying just late night snacks. Or I mean, this is like Christmas. And then tomorrow's Christmas. And then tomorrow's Christmas. And I mean, and I don't need to keep going, but for 14 days, it's like waking up. You think your kids would remember that? You think the next generation would be man, you know, and they identify that feast with the God they worship. I hope, I hope we're feasting with our kids. I hope you are. I hope, I hope I continue to do so. I hope I do more of it. When kids get an understanding of who God is and, and we don't properly reflect this part of him, we're, we're doing God a disservice and we're doing our kids a disservice. They don't understand. What is so appealing about church? What is so appealing about worship? What is so appealing about being a servant of this God? Who is he? When you have feasts like this and there's joy and there's love and there's giving and there's freedom and there's this, this amazing liberty in these times for 14, two weeks, we're doing nothing but feasting and enjoying each other, and enjoying the Lord, you know, that's a God that kids want to know. That's a God that the next generation wants to know. Along with everything else, don't get me wrong, but don't leave out the feasts. It is a celebration to worship this God. It's a beautiful thing to love him. It's a beautiful thing to experience his love. It's a beautiful picture, all of this. On the eighth day, he sent uh, the people away. And they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful, glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel and his people. And that's where we close. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, I mean, in the Old Testament, we get this beautiful relationship. All the laws, all the sacrifices, all the, all the stuff, the, the gear that we just described that was made. And at the end of it, though, they have this beautiful celebration, knowing of all, just celebrating who you are and what you've done for them. Lord, I pray that this morning for us, that um, we do. We, I don't even have to pray it in the sense that we don't have to ask for it. We thank you this morning for all the good that you've done for us. Thank you for our marriages. Thank you for our families. Thank you for our country. Thank you for our freedom and our liberty in Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the joy that you have towards us, this looking down on your kids and being happy. You enjoy us. We enjoy you, Lord. 
We love you, Dad. We do. Thank you for what you've done for us and creating us and, and being who you are. So help us as we go this week, Lord, uh, not to leave this place, you know, to linger here as long as we can. There's a lot of things going on today that can get us in, in, a, in a different place. I pray that it wouldn't. I pray that we'd be able to enjoy that too. Nothing wrong with that, but not to the exclusion of you, Lord, not to remove you from it. So we thank you for this time we've had together as a family, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we pray that you be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.